0: My ears pricked up when Bill read, none can compare with you. My mind went to Sinead O'Connor. other people had that association. Sad, sad moment this weekend when we heard of her death. Well, we are in the last sermon of this sermon series that we've had for the last nine weeks on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I certainly hope that you have been enjoying this fascinating letter. It's a letter that I think rewards repeat readings, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to make it part of their own personal devotional life. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we touched on some pretty serious issues relating to the Roman sexual economy and how one of the most radical things the early church did was to challenge that economy. We're going to continue that conversation today by looking at Paul's statements about Christian marriage. Before I read this passage, I need to prepare you because the words I'm about to read are going to sound really awful to many people. Our reading today includes the statement, wives should submit to their husbands. There are probably few passages in scripture that are more offensive to our modern ears than the words I'm about to read. But what I hope will happen by the end of the sermon today is that you might come to understand some of the historical context in which these words were written and that you will come to see that this passage actually, certainly in its own context, was radically liberating and might even continue to have relevance to us today. However, I planned my vacation so that this would be the last sermon that I would give (laughs) before leaving for a month, just in case. Our reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 32. Let's listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to us and to the church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen there is an irony about sex in America. On the one hand, it seems like sex is everywhere. You can't turn on the TV, you can't go on the internet without seeing so many highly sexualized images. On the other hand, Americans are genuinely concerned with sexual ethics. One of the biggest examples of this recently was the Me Too movement. In 2017, Hollywood began a painful process of reckoning over the sexual exploitation of women in the film industry. In the beginning of that movement, there were actresses like Rose McGowan and Ashley Judd who came forward reporting horrible experiences with Harvey Weinstein. Eventually, dozens of other women said that they, too, had been abused by this man. That then led to investigations in other industries. And there were a few years there where it seemed like every week there was another revelation of Men behaving badly, Charlie Rose, Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Steve Wynn. The list goes on and on. And when you look at this list, you notice the diversity of it, that these men come from such a wide variety of careers. Some are Democrats, some are Republicans. In fact, it, it seemed like there really were only ultimately two factors that mattered in predicting Who would behave badly? Number one, they had power. Number two, they were men. The Me Too movement was very consciously a movement of women pushing back against aggressive male sexuality. It was women saying to men, you need to control yourself. The onus is on you to change they were recognizing a truth that all of the statistics bear out, that the vast majority of sexual violence is committed by men. And therefore, for this problem to improve, men are the ones who have to change. I mean, obviously, women can help expose the problem, but for this problem to be solved, it is up to men to control themselves. Now, none of this, I would guess, is surprising to you, but from a historical perspective, there is something here that is quite odd. And that is the simple fact that the argument resonated with people. Americans said, yeah, men should control themselves. And this was true even for some of the men who were themselves accused of wrongdoing. Many of them publicly apologized. Many of them agreed that they should have behaved differently, and there were, in fact, very few of the men who lost their careers even tried to get their careers back. Why is this strange from a historical perspective? It's because throughout all of human history, before this time, nobody believed that men could control themselves. And the fact that today everybody does expect that men can control themselves is a direct consequence of the Christian sexual revolution that started in texts like the one that we read this morning from Ephesians. And that's what I hope to help you see today, that it was really Christians who first introduced this novel idea that male sexual desire can and should be controlled. We want to start, I want to start today by looking again at, at the Roman economy of sex. We began this conversation last week. We looked at two horrifying realities of the Roman economy, which were the exploitation of slaves and children. And what I didn't mention is that this sexual economy was built around some beliefs. The foremost belief being this idea that male sexuality simply could not be restrained. It wasn't possible, and therefore, it had to be given an outlet. Now, interestingly, the Romans did believe in marriage. This was their view of marriage. Women had to be completely faithful to their husbands. But men could have as much sex as they wanted... There was really only one condition that they had to meet. They couldn't sleep with another free Roman man's wife. But of course there were so many other outlets for Roman men. The men who could afford slaves simply used their slaves. It was taken for granted that one of the primary roles of a slave was to satisfy a Roman man's sexual appetites. They did so with adult slaves and child slaves of both sexes. It is just a deeply disturbing reality of the ancient world. And we talked last week about how the only reason this could have ever been accepted by the Greeks and the Romans is because they viewed slaves as less than human. That was the only way they could morally justify the exploitation and the objectification of these people. We also looked last week at how radical it was for Paul to, to say to people in his church, slaves are people too, slaves are children of God, slaves are in fact equal in the eyes of God. And I, I quoted his, that wonderful line from Galatians where Paul says, in Christ there is no slave or free. And that explains why Christianity was so appealing to slaves and why so many slaves in the first century became Christians. Now, the second outlet were the brothels. Roman men who could not afford to own slaves went to the brothels, and I mentioned last week that there were no fewer than 45 public brothels in just the city of Rome, and these were awful places that destroyed the people who worked in them. So that was the reality. But we have to ask, why? Why were these behaviors tolerated? Well, it's very interesting. It turns out that it had a lot to do with Greek and Roman theology. And I want to just mention that I've gotten a lot of this information for these two sermons from a wonderful new book by a classic scholar named Kyle Harper. It's called From Shame to Sin, and it's about all of the different ways that the church challenged the Roman sexual economy. He points out two things that I want to share with you today. Number one, the Greeks and the Romans viewed sexual desire as literally a god. It was a god called Eros, Eros was, sexually, was sexual desire personified in the form of a god, and therefore pagans believed that their sexual desire, whatever form it took, had divine support. It was approved by the gods, it was sanctioned by the gods, and not just any sexual desire, specifically aggressive sexual desire. And I think anybody who's studied even just a little bit of Greek and Roman mythology, you know how many Ro- Greek and Roman gods were rapists. All of the great Greek gods kidnapped and raped women. Poseidon raped Demeter. Later, her daughter Persephone was captured and raped by Hades. Zeus, who was the king of the gods, was the chief rapist. His method of of rape was always manipulative. He would transform himself into an animal or another person in order to gain a woman's trust. And then when they were at their most vulnerable, he would attack them and rape them. So, for example, he becomes a swan and he rapes Leda. He becomes Golden Rain and uh, rapes Denai. He rapes Alchemy after disguising himself as her husband. He rapes Europa after turning into a bull. Zeus even raped his mother, Rhea, after turning himself into a snake. So I want you to imagine for a moment that this is your model of God, that the actual divine beings that are ruling over your life it was acceptable for men to kidnap and rape women. Don't you think that this would affect how you view your own sexual desire? Obviously this helps explain why Roman men thought that it was their divine right to impose their will on anyone that they could. But there's a second reason why this behavior was tolerated. Harper talks about how much the Romans believed in fate. And again, Read any Greek and Roman play and you will immediately see the power of the fates. Most of these stories go something like this. A person has a terrible oracle delivered to them about what their future holds. This is what's going to happen to you in the future. They don't want that to happen and so they try to resist it. But the more they try to resist their fate, the more they fall into it. One of the classic examples of this is Oedipus Rex. Oedipus's parents receive an oracle that their son, who's about to be born, is going to kill his father and marry his mother. Of course, they're horrified by this. They say, we have to get out of this fate. And so they take their child to a hillside, this infant. They leave him there to die. And yet in trying to get out of their fate, what do they actually do? They set up the very conditions that will allow the oracle to come true because the child is found by a shepherd who gives him to another couple, the king and queen of Thebes. Oedipus grows up not knowing anything about his real biological parents. And so when he encounters his father on a road and they fight and Oedipus kills the man, what has he done? He has unknowingly stepped right into the fate that was written for him before he was born. Now what Harper says is that this belief in fate shaped Roman ideas of male sexuality because they thought that male sexuality was fated. It could not be escaped. And therefore, the only real way to deal with it was to give it an appropriate outlet. And so the Romans actually viewed this vast sexual economy in which so many thousands of people were exploited and ruined as helpful social institutions because they gave Roman men a release valve. They could express their eros-given desires without putting their marriages at risk. I mean, again, the irony is that the Romans did believe in marriage, but sex with a slave or prostitute was not considered adultery because they didn't think that those were real people. Now, all of this background is important, I think. If we're going to come to Paul's teaching on marriage with, with an understanding of the environment in which he was living and teaching, we have to know this information. We have to know that these Ephesian Gentiles who were joining his church are bringing this worldview with them, this assumption that, that a man had total control over his household and total license to do whatever he wanted, and that conversely his wife had no power at all. Here's one more piece of evidence. This is a quote from Cicero, the great Roman poet. This was written in 45 BC. Cicero is describing the ideal Roman man. He kept four vigorous sons in order, not to mention five daughters, a great household, and numerous workers and slaves. He didn't just direct his household, he ruled it. His slaves were scared of him. His children loved and admired him. Everyone was fond of him. Under his roof, there was discipline. So now we are in the Roman world. And I want to ask you now to listen again to Paul's words and see if they sound different to you at all. Imagine you are a pagan who has joined the church. Your your worldview has never been questioned that men were the absolute authority in their homes, that everybody had to submit to them, especially the women. And you hear Paul say this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I wonder if that sounds different at all to you now, after having some context for this world. Now, I just want to say, I'm not trying to let Paul off the hook. Is it true that Paul affirms some of the hierarchy of the ancient world? Absolutely. He absolutely says that husbands are to be the head of the household. But I think we have to understand that in his world, it would have been literally impossible to think otherwise. The New Testament scholar Sharon Dowd puts it this way. She says the apostles advocated this system not because God had revealed it, as a divine will for Christian homes, but because it was the only stable system anybody knew about. Her point is that Paul could not have single-handedly overthrown the entire entire social structure of the ancient world, but what he could do was to subversively work within it, to help husbands and wives subversively, subversively find equality within that system this is something that the Christian writer Rachel, Rachel Held Elvins, has written about. She, she struggled with this passage as a Christian woman. But what she ultimately came to believe is that Paul was consciously subverting Roman patriarchy. This is what she said. It is hard for us to recognize now. But Paul was introducing an entirely new community, a community that transcends the rigid hierarchy of human institutions, a community in which submission is mutual and all are free. Now that sounds a little bit better, doesn't it? And I think this gets us to the main point I want to make today, that the most radical part of Paul's message was actually this suggestion that, human, that men and women are free, that they actually do have the freedom to choose their lives and what the, their behavior. Why was this so radical? Because if people have free will, then it means there's no such thing as fate. And if there's no such thing as fate, it means that men can control themselves. I mean, the Romans didn't believe that. The Romans said men can't stop lusting, men can't stop abusing, men can't stop raping, even the gods rape. And so the best thing to do is just to let them rape, rape slaves. I mean, at least that way they won't rape other men's wives. And that also is interesting because the real basis of this entire system was the protection of Roman property because that's that's what wives were considered to be. But Paul tells these Gentile converts, these Roman men who had undoubtedly participated themselves in the sexual economy that had exploited so many people, you can be faithful to your wives. You should be faithful to your wives because Christ is faithful to you. And that idea is simply so radical that it it would never even have come into a pagan's mind that they had the will to choose. So I want to bring this back to our current moment. What is so interesting is that this is precisely the message of the Me Too movement. Men, you need to control yourselves. I want to share with you a statement uh, from Tom Holland, who is a historian of the ancient world. He makes this claim very explicitly. He writes that the Me Too movement was a Christian movement. Now, he knows that nobody thinks it's Christian. I mean, he knows that many of the people practicing the Me Too movement, engaging in it, probably aren't even Christian. Maybe a lot of them are atheists. But he says this belief that men can restrain their sexual impulses is an argument that was inconceivable before the rise of Christianity. And then he talks about Harvey Weinstein. He says Harvey Weinstein was the most ordinary man in the Roman world. He would not have raised any eyebrows. This is what all free men did. They all used their power to exploit people for their own pleasure. Here's what Holland writes. The insistence of scripture, he's talking about this passage from Ephesians. The insistence of scripture that a man and a woman, whenever they took the marital bed, were joined as Christ and his church were joined Becoming one flesh, gave them a rare dignity. If the wife was instructed to submit to her husband, then so equally was the husband instructed to be faithful to his wife. Here, by the standards of the age into which Christianity had been born, was an obligation that demanded an almost heroic degree of self denial. And yet, Paul would not have preached it if it hadn't been possible. It was possible. Because God gave people freedom. God allowed people to choose. That's the very basis of the gospel. I mean, this is what we talk about every week. you, You have to choose to follow Christ. If it wasn't a choice, it wouldn't be the gospel. If we don't have the will to choose right from wrong, the gospel doesn't even make sense. And there's a deeper level to this because free will, if it's real... It helps us to understand one of the most perplexing questions of faith. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there sin in the world? Why would a loving God allow people to hurt one another? And here's the best answer I have come up with. God could certainly have created a world without freedom. He could have created a world in which all people have no choice but to do loving things all the time. And that world would have been many things. I mean, it would certainly be a utopia. It would be a world of justice and a world of fairness. But there is one thing that that hypothetical utopian world could not have. Love. Because love has to be a choice. I mean, just think about it. If somebody forces you to love them, that's not love. And yet, choice is exactly what Rome denied people. Slaves didn't have the right to choose. Wives and children in Roman families had no freedom to choose. But in the church, Paul says something they had never heard before. You are free. You don't have to submit to one another. You don't have to respect one another. You don't even have to love Christ. But you can choose to. And that's what makes it real love. But there's another part to this. Your choice is not the only one. You see, in the Christian worldview, love doesn't ever exist in a vacuum because God is also a person. And therefore, love exists within a relationship. God is also free. He's not fated. He chooses what he does. He has the choice to love you. And when he loves you, we have a word for that. It's called grace. It's not fate. He didn't have to do it. He's not fated to love you. He chooses to love you, and that's why we call it grace. Now, therefore, your relationship to God is will and grace. It's not just a sitcom. It's a picture of reality. Paul was writing to a church that didn't even think it was possible for men to be faithful to their wives. They had an entire sexual economy dedicated to the belief that men couldn't control themselves. And then and yet Paul steps into that world view and he says, This your Savior did more than this. He died for you. And if you understand the depth of his love, both husbands and wives will choose to be faithful to one another. All right, I'm almost at the end here. I, I want to just bring it back because I think that people continue to say things like they said in the time of Rome these these desires are simply too strong you know it's I don't like pornography but you know it's good it's there because at least it gives me a way to express my sexuality and I don't hurt anybody in the process. First of all that's not true. People are hurt. Secondly it's not true that you don't have a choice. You don't have to fall into this trap. You don't have to look at pornography. You don't have to see prostitutes. You don't have to have affairs. Is marriage easy? No. I mean, that's the reason fewer people do it today. Marriage rates have been on the decline for decades, and yet in the voluntary constraints of marriage, meaning that people voluntarily choose freely to place restrictions on themselves, in those voluntary constraints, what people discover is will and grace, which means love and forgiveness. There's a famous quote from an old movie called Love Story. Love means having, never having to say you're sorry. It's one of the stupidest things that has ever been said. John Lennon, who was frankly not the best model of a faithful husband, nevertheless had a wise response to this quote. He said, love means having to say you're sorry every 15 minutes. That's the Christian way. Love and forgiveness will And grace. Why? Not because of our own strength, but because of what Christ did. And this is why Paul, when he's talking about marriage, he keeps bringing the focus back to Christ. He keeps saying to people, imitate Christ in your marriage. Husbands, be faithful to your wives, just as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for it. Paul knows that marriage is not easy. Paul knows that marriage is not going to work if people are only thinking of themselves and their own power. He knows that the only way to find the humility necessary to love and to forgive on a daily basis is the cross. Why? Because the cross is the place our egos go to die the cross is the place our pride goes to die. The cross is the place our need to control goes to die. It's only in the light of the cross that we can really put another person's needs before our own. Which is just another way of saying to love another person. And on that topic of love, I think this is a good place to end not this, just this sermon, but this entire nine-week series. It has been wonderful to travel with you through this letter. Again, I hope that you will continue to read it. Let's end in prayer. Christ Jesus, although you are love itself, you came into the world in the form of a servant, humbling yourself to death on a cross that all might have life in your name. Empower us to choose love freely and to practice grace that we might share your gifts with the world. Amen.